Hey, welcome everyone to our God's Design for Sexuality series. This is part of the teaching mission of Community Bible Church, whereby we address from the Bible topics that are of interest to folks three times a year. So those of you that are in the 48183 area code, over time you have received our mailers from time to time for various series that we do in this teaching mission. Some of those in the past have been titled, What's the Difference Between World Religions and Denominations? Uh, we have one called, You Mean the Bible Teaches That?, which looks at the ethical teachings of the Bible on ethical issues, why you can trust the Bible, its origin and its uniqueness, Big Bang or Big God, that is looking at the relationship between science and, and Scripture. What's the world coming to? We have done series on end times because there's much interest in that. So for many years we have been doing these, and this is just one among those topics, important topics, that the Bible addresses and about which very many are interested. You should have received a set of notes as you came in this morning, and on page one of those notes, up at the top, the invitation for this series stated that sexual confusion has dominated our discourse in the last decade. The morass of issues and struggles, pornography, gender identity, same-sex attraction, same-sex marriage, and more, make consensus impossible and answers elusive. But God does not want us to stumble in darkness, and so His guidebook for life, the Bible, gives us His perspective on sexuality. Now, that referenced the last decade because there have indeed been seismic changes to social mores, norms, and sexual mores and norms, and laws in just the last few years which have raised important questions, left many confused and sometimes angry as the culture wars are fought on television, social media, school boards, and libraries, and in locker rooms. So that's why we referenced the, the last decade in particular, because that's been the reality. But although the issues related to sexuality have shifted dramatically in recent years, the concern about them goes back much, much further. And especially among professing Christian people, we should have been thinking about these issues and, and struggles with them for a very long time. And that's because the need for sober and biblical reflection on sexuality did not arise lately. Even if the keen interest in this topic has. The truth is, heaven, we've got a problem. And evangelicals, among whom we count ourselves, people who say that we are followers of Jesus Christ and we believe that God has spoken in the pages of His Word, then evangelicals have had this problem for a very long time. But I am concerned and convinced that we have become desensitized over time because there have been, frankly, so very many scandals. And over time, we become desensitized to things that my father, who passed away in 1974, I often think if he were able to come back, he wouldn't recognize. 
He wouldn't recognize our culture, and he also would not recognize the tolerance that the church has for sensuality. And so I want to, I want to start this, and I want to spend some time talking about that truth, the fact that this sexuality struggle is something that we should have recognized and should be recognizing on a regular basis, but that it's not something that's so far away, but rather something that's very up close. And it's something that I think we've become all too accustomed to and even dismissed too often. You see in the middle of page one there, the bullets with just just a smattering of the scandals that have gone on. Some of you remember in the late 80s that within just a year or two of each other, Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart had dramatic downfalls because of sexual scandal. All the while, standing before God's people, standing before God's people and touting sexual purity. Ted Haggard, you may not remember that name, but Back in the uh, 90s, actually in the early 2000s, he was the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. And yet it turned out that he was hiding uh, homosexual proclivities. And so here he was all the while touting sexual purity. And yet this is his lifestyle, Ravi Zacharias, just in the last few years. Ravi Zacharias had no accountability for his ministry. He would go on the road. He would have, uh, he owned some massage parlors. He would have places that he would go, and he had no one to hold him accountable for his own moral purity. Joshua Harris. Joshua Harris wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. It was wildly popular in very conservative evangelical circles. It uh, promoted courting rather than dating. Some of you might, might remember this. And Joshua Harris has refuted everything he wrote in that book. And he likewise is uh, a gay man. Joshua Duggar. You know, we can get this thing all fixed if we can just keep our children away from those people. Well, if anybody tried to do that, it was the Duggars, didn't they? I mean, they built their own life around themselves. They almost built their own insular city. They did everything themselves. They did everything together. You see, friends, the problem that we have, heaven, we have a problem, is not primarily outside of us, but inside of us. So Joshua Duggar couldn't escape that. And neither can our children escape that. The Southern Baptist Convention has been in the news in the, the last few years because of covering up uh, sexual scandals. Sovereign Grace Churches. Some of you may remember the name C.J. Mahaney, and he founded the, the Sovereign Grace Churches, and uh, they, they did a lot of good things. There were a lot of good music and so on, uh, but they too uh, were found to be covering up sexual scandals. Carl Lentz part of the, and Brian Houston, part of the Hillsong churches and Hillsong music, which I would advise you to stay away from. But that's who they are, and they are disgraced because of their own scandals. Bill Hybels, Willow Creek Community Church in the Chicago area, had to resign because of his own scandals. People in our church, 
I just, you know, include us, me. We are susceptible to these struggles as well. And it can go back much, much further, can't it? King David in the Bible. His son Solomon. So at the very outset of this series, I want to sober us to say, you know, a series like this is not first and foremost about people out there. It's about people that include us. And that this is a sin struggle that we see in our own circles. And so I say here, bottom of page one, the scourge of pornography has increased exponentially and it's ensnared men, women, teens, and children, including to sex trafficking. But many Christians may assume that the church is immune. They see the smiling faces of the people who attend their church, but access to porn is increasingly easy due to the wide variety of formats now available, especially via the internet on smartphones and computers. And as I, as I read that, smartphones and computers, I guarantee you that there are men in this room, perhaps ladies as well, but men in this room who have a tinge of guilt as they read that because they know what they're doing with their smartphone. They know what they're doing on the internet. They know how they have to hide it and have been for a very long time. It's the reason that the leader of our men's ministry over a number of years, Pastor Rich, has been very keen on trying to help our men with this struggle. We have a class called the Conquer Series that a number of our men have, have gone through and we offer on a uh, periodic basis for that very reason, because it is so pervasive. And the numbers show that over 40 million Americans are regular visitors to porn sites. There are around 42 million porn websites, which totals around 370 million pages of porn. The industry's annual revenue is more than the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. It's also more than the combined revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC. 47% of families in the United States reported that pornography is a problem in their home. 11 is the average age that a child is first exposed. 56% of American divorces involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. 70% of Christian youth pastors report that they have had at least one teen come to them for help in dealing with pornography in the past 12 months. As I speak right now in another part of our building, our junior high and senior high are having their own series parallel with this one on this subject matter but at their, at their level because it is an issue that unfortunately starts early. 59% of pastors said that married men seek their help for porn use. I can testify to that. 33% of women aged 25 and under search for porn at least once a month. 55% of married men, 25 of married women say they watch porn at least once a month. 57% of pastors say porn addiction is the most damaging issue in their congregations. And 69% say porn has adversely impacted the church. So clearly, sexual brokenness is not only, as I've said, a problem for them out there, but for us in here. 
And further, it's not confined to one category of sexual expression, whether heterosexual or, or homosexual. So friends, if we are going to teach our children well, if we are going to practice sexual fidelity, if we're going to love those who are captured by the cruel clutches of sexual distortion, then we're going to have to see the, the big picture of who and what we were made to be, how we have come to fall short in ways expressed like this, and in what way we move back toward our original purpose. And the title of this series was carefully chosen, God's Design for Sexuality, because it embodies all of those. So over these next these notes that you received, that we may need to continue next week, so if we don't finish your eight pages today, bring that back with you next week. But in the next the three major points, I want to look at the three terms in that title, God, Design, and Sexuality. And first of all, I want to look at God's design for, for sexuality. God's design for sexuality. Now, the reason that it's very important to start here, to start with, with God, is because where you begin will profoundly affect where you end up. The assumptions you make at the beginning of thinking about any particular topic are going to determine your conclusions. Too often we have these, but we haven't consciously thought about what they are. So we need to consciously think about our, our beginning point. I recommend a, a book to you. We don't have it in our resource center because it's, it's not a spiritual book, but it is a helpful book. And it's a classic from 1987 by an economist named uh, Thomas Sowell, and he wrote a book called A Conflict of Visions. And in that book, he contrasts two broad categories of how people look at the world. And one vision he called the constrained vision, the, con the constrained vision. It sees humanity as flawed. It's encapsulated in Edmund Burke's declaration that, quote, we cannot change the nature of things and of men, but must act upon them as best we can. And it's found in the philosopher Immanuel Kant's assertion that, quote, from the crooked timber of humanity, no truly straight thing can ever be made. So they recognized a flaw in humanity and said you need to have your vision of how things ought to go in society, including in economics but in other realms as well. It ought to be constrained by that reality. But then the opposite of that is the unconstrained or the utopian view of the human condition. It's the belief that there are no inherent limits to what mankind can accomplish, and so trade-offs are unnecessary. World peace is achievable. Social problems such as poverty, crime, and racism cannot merely be managed but eliminated. And so he's recently written another book called Social Justice Fallacies, and in it he has a quote from the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who expressed the essence of this unconstrained vision when he wrote, quote, the equality which nature established among men and the inequality which they have instituted among themselves. Now, we can all dream, and the Bible actually gives such a dream, and it will become reality in the future in something called the kingdom. But in the meantime, we are indeed flawed people. We are indeed sinful people. And so we need to see that, but in order to see that, 
so that we don't have an unconstrained vision, unconstrained by any barriers, any uh, guardrails around the, the decisions we make on any topic, including this topic of sexuality, then we need to start at the, the beginning with God's design. So, can God, can God be proven? Some of you here taking this class, I say, may not consider yourselves to be theists, but in fact all people are of necessity because so many aspects of our lives, as we will see today, are impossible apart from Him. So I ask the question, can God be proven? Skeptics say, while they cannot prove that God does not exist, that we have no more evidence for the existence of God than we do for Santa Claus or the Yeti, you know, the abominable snowman, um, the Yeti, or the Loch Ness Monster, or invisible fairies at the end of your garden. But what they fail to realize, and if you fit into that category, then you need to realize that the God of the Bible is fundamentally a fundamentally different kind of being. And so the proof that we present for God must be different proof as well. If the Yeti, the abominable snowman, is real, it's a physical thing that exists in time and space as part of the physical universe. And so it could be observed by one of the five senses or indirectly by physical evidence like finding giant footprints. By the way, none of this is in your notes. I'm just yapping uh, for now. The God of the Bible is fundamentally and radically different from every other thing in existence. Deities in Greek and Roman mythology existed within the universe as part of the universe. But God is spirit, a spiritual being that transcends both space and time. He's not part of the universe because He created it. He's not constrained by space and time because He created space and time. And so one of the unique aspects of God is His independence or His self-existence. Everything other than God is dependent on God for existence, but God depends on nothing and no one for His. And that is why as we discussed in our class, Master Plan for Life, midweek, our midweek class this past Wednesday, that God gave His personal name to His people when He appeared to Moses in the burning bush and He said, I am that I am. He is, he is self-existing. Nothing except God defines God then. God is by nature the absolute being who determines and sustains every other. So we do not detect God like a thing within the universe. It's not now that God is more ephemeral than, other, than beings like us. In fact, it's quite the opposite. He is the most real being of all which means we need to steer clear of proving His existence in a way that treats Him like any other being. So, back to page two then. God's design for sexuality. This is why the Bible then says, in the beginning, God. It starts with God, does not seek to, to prove Him, starts with God. As we will see in a bit, the Bible assumes that people were made by God to, to know God. And that's why it can say, Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
fool in the Bible is not someone who is ignorant. Fools are very often very, very highly intelligent. Ignorance means I don't know. And we're all ignorant of some things. Many of us are ignorant of a lot of things. But foolishness is failure to apply what you do know. And the Bible teaches that all people know the existence of God, even if they seek to suppress that. And that's why it's the fool who has said in his heart there is no God. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. So everyone has access to this general revelation, this general making known from God to humanity. Scripture teaches over and over. God has, according to Solomon and Ecclesiastes, set eternity in the human heart. And in Romans chapter 1, there is then this indictment that says, what may be known about God is plain because God has made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So as we start a series on any topic, and certainly a topic like sexuality, which has so many ramifications and consequences, we need to start at the beginning. We need to think about what it is that we assume and presuppose and make sure that we have that right so that we build on a proper foundation and arrive then at proper conclusions. We start with God as we must, and I'll seek to show that further in just a, just a bit. That is why, then, in the Bible, the Apostle Paul, as he traveled around spreading the message of Jesus Christ, found himself in Athens, Greece on one occasion. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 17. And when he goes there, he's the one who wrote Romans chapter 1 about people being without excuse and everybody knowing that there's a God. So when he encounters any group of people, including philosophers, he knows that they know God even if they deny that. And so when he speaks to them, he seeks to show that. And one of the ways he showed it was by quoting some of their own poets. And down at the bottom of page 2, in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, the issue for those Athenian philosophers was, yes, they believed in God. Yes, they had to acknowledge that they believed in God, as all honest people must, as I'm going to attempt to show. But... They just simply had a God as something out there. And so Paul said, the one you ignorantly worship, I am now going to proclaim to you. But he did it on the basis of the fact that they knew that there must be of necessity this God. So how can God's existence be proven? Well, here's the, the answer in a nutshell. Even though God cannot be directly perceived like the ordinary things within the universe, it turns out that we cannot make sense of the ordinary things we do perceive and of the universe as a whole unless, in fact, God exists. So to put it another way, only a worldview that's centered on a transcendent, perfect, personal creator can make rational sense of the very things that we take for granted all the time. 
You see, if the, if the Yeti, if the abominable snowman exists, there's not a whole lot hanging on that, is there? But there's a whole lot hanging on whether or not God exists. If God exists, then everything, that, that affects everything simply because of who God is. If God exists, everything else depends for its existence and nature on God. If God exists, the ultimate reality is personal and rational and moral in nature. If God exists, it follows that the universe has a transcendent personal cause from which it derives its existence, its meaning, and its direction, its intelligibility, and its moral character. If God exists, life on this planet is not a cosmic accident. Most important of all, we are not a cosmic accident. We were brought into existence by God for a purpose. So how could there be anything more significant for us than that? But if naturalism is the explanation for the universe, for us, it follows that reality is ultimately non-personal, non-rational, it's non-moral. The universe we inhabit has no ultimate meaning, has no purpose, no direction or significance. It came from nowhere. It's heading nowhere. The only real laws governing the universe are the laws of physics, which means there's no moral order behind anything. Because laws of physics are purely descriptive in nature. They tell us how physical things do behave, but they have nothing to say about how they ought to behave. The laws of physics are morally blind. So according to naturalism, then, nothing in the universe is ultimately good or evil. Objectively speaking, the universe is simply a clump of physical things doing what physical things do, obeying the laws of physics, and in the final analysis, there's nothing more to be said about it. So again, I remind you, we're going to talk over the next several weeks about sexuality. There are all kinds of value issues, moral issues associated with that. But in a naturalistic worldview, it has nothing to say about it. So I say, top of page three, that existence itself requires God. So you, you start with the fact that something exists. I mean, I think we could all agree that uh, we exist. Let's, let's at least pretend you exist. Rene Descartes, the philosopher, said you have to exist to doubt your own existence. I think, therefore, I am. We acknowledge that many things exist. Stars, mountains, trees, rabbits, buildings, smartphones, and on it goes. But for people who reflect on matters like that, the question arises, why? Why does anything exist at all? In a sense, this most obvious of truths that, that something, some things exist, is rather a surprising one because if you think about it, none of those things in that short list of stars and mountains and trees and rabbits and buildings and smartphones, none of those had to exist. Each of them might not have existed. And philosophers have a, a term for things that exist but didn't have to. They are contingent things. They are contingent. The Eiffel Tower is contingent. The French didn't have to make the, the Eiffel Tower. I'm glad they did. Rabbits exist, but they didn't have to. You didn't actually have to exist. 
I mean, your, your parents might not have met. You know, maybe one of them failed to swipe right. Is that the way it, way it goes? And so, they, and so they never got together. And that's true. This contingent idea that none of it had to exist is true for all things in the universe, all of the parts of the universe and therefore of the whole. And here's the point for us with regard to God. Every contingent thing needs an explanation for why then it exists, since it might not have. But that explanation can't come from the thing itself. It has to come from outside that thing. It makes no sense to say something brought itself into existence since it would have to exist already in order to do anything at all. So the existence of every contingent thing has to be explained by some other thing. And that other thing has to be either contingent or non-contingent itself. So existence itself requires God, a non-contingent, self-existing, independent being. Secondly, values require God. We make value judgments all the time. We conclude that things are either good or bad. Sometimes we up the ante from good or bad to some things are perfect and other things are, are evil. Sometimes these value judgments are subjective. You, either, you like coffee or you don't like coffee. Or if you like coffee, you like certain kinds of coffee, but not other kinds of coffee. They're, you like a movie or liked a movie or you didn't like a movie. Those are subjective, but others are objective. They are, they are good or bad outside of anyone's opinion. So, for example, antibiotics are good. The Holocaust is bad. That's true outside of what anyone thinks about it, both of us, outside of us. So what is the objective outside of a standard by which that's determined? And it can't be reduced to desires, to feelings or preferences as if the Holocaust was bad for no other reason than most people didn't like it or want it. In fact, what if some people did want it? And in fact, some people did want it, didn't they? And what we've seen just this weekend with Hamas and, and Israel shows that there are still people who want that. And it must be absolutely good, this outside standard, not partly good. Otherwise, there would still have to be some higher standard by which we judge it not to be absolutely good. And so as you, you think about these things, and I'm not suggesting you have to think about them in depth all the time, but when you want to talk about heavy issues, important issues that affect your life, your family's life, affect your community's life, things like sexuality and the brave new world into which our culture has entered, we need to step back and we need to think about the beginning. From where are we able to define these things? By whom are we able to define these things? And it must be an absolute existence, self-existing, independent. It must be one who is the standard of these value judgments outside of ourselves. And further, I say in the outline, morals require God. 
Values require God. Morals require God. This is an extension of the values. Most of our value judgments are in also moral judgments. And some are absolutely wrong and evil, what the Nazis did to the Jews. I would assume we could all agree. Objective and absolute moral standards rather than simply societal conventions, require moral laws that transcend individuals and society. That's a mouthful. I said rather than societal conventions. That is, societies just agree that certain things are wrong. But again, just to use the Nazis and the Holocaust, that was a society that decided things that we would all know that are transcendently wrong had actually for some people become okay to eliminate some people. And so these are not just conventions. I saw a debate from, boy, it goes back at least 20 years ago. I watched it again this week. It's kind of grainy. Otherwise, I was going to show it to a portion of it to you. But it was a two-hour debate between uh, a former presidential candidate, Alan Keyes. Some of you might remember him. And he was a very well-spoken, articulate, very good debater. And he was debating uh, the attorney, Alan Dershowitz. Alan Dershowitz is an atheist. And the debate topic was, is God necessary for morality? And Alan Keyes is a Christian, and he was saying, yes, indeed. He was making the kind of argument that I'm making here. Dershowitz doesn't believe in God, but still considers himself to be moral. And during their question and answer time, Alan Keyes asked Dershowitz, who was Jewish and who had family members who perished in the Holocaust. He said, was that evil and was it transcendently evil? And do you know that Alan Keyes could not say that it's absolutely evil? It was evil because society has determined it was evil. Because the majority of people, by convention, have said it was evil. The Bible actually teaches that there will be a time in the future where society will determine that it will be just fine to murder Jews and Christians and other people as societies have throughout human history. So objective and absolute moral standards, rather than societal conventions, sorry, Alan Dershowitz, require moral laws that transcend individuals and societies. And how do we then account for that? outside of God. Reason itself requires God. Our ability to reason presupposes God. Now, we take for granted our ability to reason, to judge between truth and falsehood, to extend our knowledge of the world using logical inferences and evaluation of evidence and to decide what's reasonable and what's unreasonable. But as you think about it, there is no other creature, there's no other species that can reason as we do. And that's because the reason we have this ability to reason, the purpose for which we have it or the origin of it, is that the ultimate reality is a rational one. God is the supreme intellect, and since God is both perfect and personal, He knows and understands all truths, and more than that, God knows and understands how every truth relates to every other truth. So what this means is that our universe has its source in a rational mind. 
There are aspects of it that seem to defy our rational understanding, but the universe as such is not intrinsically irrational or unintelligible. But outside of a rational God who explains this reasoning ability that we take for granted, then those who have another worldview do not have a suitable answer. And further, Christianity teaches not only that we were created by God, but specifically that we were created in God's image. And therefore, because we were created in the image of a God like this, this explains then why it is we are able to reason as we do. So some have said the person who denies God is like a child sitting on her father's lap but slapping him. He's the one who holds her up, but she's defying him. And that's what, unfortunately, creatures do before their creator all too often. And so existence requires God, page 3. Values require God. Morals do. Reason itself does. Science requires God. Science is possible because God exists. In other words, the, the very existence and success of science depends on God. It's really recognized that science rests on a whole host of philosophical assumptions about the universe and about human beings that science itself cannot justify. No scientific experiment can prove these assumptions. Instead, scientists take them for granted. But if those assumptions were false, science itself would be futile. For example, scientific work takes for granted the existence of objective moral values. Scientists have a moral duty to be thorough and careful in their research and to be honest and accurate when they publish their results. Those are absolute moral standards, but from where did those come? And science and the kinds of things that we benefit from that science has discovered and publishes and, and, puts, into, and puts into action are things that assume objective moral values. In fact, the whole scientific enterprise is driven by a value judgment, namely that it's good to understand how the natural world operates and that we ought to. We have an obligation to pursue it. And beyond that, science assumes that we live in an ordered universe so that they can look at its order and, and this is important, assume that that order will continue. But outside of God, you can make no such assumption. God has intervened in his world, and he, the Bible says, will intervene in his world again. He will destroy the world as it is, and he will create a new heavens and a new earth. He intervened because of the fallenness of humanity in the, the, the flood, you'll remember, in Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9. And there were eight people who survived that judgment of God upon the, the earth. But God said he would not destroy the world by that means again. And he said something important in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 22. He said there that from this time on until the end, there will be springtime and harvest. That the hydrological system cycle will, will continue. Now, if God were regularly intervening in the order of the universe, then you wouldn't be able to know that something that's happening today, a process that works today, is going to work 
tomorrow or next week or 50 years from now. But God has made that orderly universe and further allows it to move forward so that we can investigate it, we can draw conclusions about it, and we can depend upon those conclusions going into the future. Those that do not have at the basis of existence and of scientific inquiry, those who do not have as the basis of that a God who has made this orderly universe because he is a rational and orderly being himself can make no such promise. A scientific experiment may work now. They have no way to promise it'll work 10 years from now. Science requires God. And so this series starts with God. And we told you when we invited you that we were going to look at what God has to say and we're going to look in God's book about what he says about this most important issue, which is laden with all of this stuff at the top of page 3. Sexuality has to do with values. It has to do with morals. It has to do with an ability to reason. It has to do with science, anatomy, and biology. So it has to do with all of these, and yet so often we enter into discussion and debate about these issues without ever thinking about the foundations upon which our conclusions rest. Where you start will determine the conclusions you draw. We start with God. We must start with God. You must start with God in all things. And because there is this God, as is absolutely necessary, and as I've described, then this God can do, page 3, what we say here, now there can be design. There can be design for sexuality. There can be design for our world. There can be purpose and order in it. And so we'll start the second point on page 3, and then we'll continue next week. So it's God's design for sexuality, and then it is God's design. And the essential elements of God's original design for humanity and creation, our fall into sin and God's gracious promise of restoration, all of that, His original design, fall into sin, promise of restoration, those are all given in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. So we're going to look at humanity in creation, we're going to look at humanity in the fall, and then we're going to look at God's design for restoration of His original creation. And that fall into sin includes the way we distort all good things that God has given, including the good gift of sexuality. So we start with God. We will look at God's purpose for giving His design, for giving us sexuality, and then how our fallenness has distorted that over time. Bring these notes then. If you remember back with you, if not, we'll have copies for the people who forgot. And so let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessing of this Lord's Day and being able to be with your people in your presence and to worship you and learn of you. And we thank you for this opportunity to look at this extremely important issue for each of us personally, because you have made us as sexual beings. And so we need to look to you for your design in that. We need to look to your word for how that design has been distorted and what the remedy is. And so we thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for these brothers and sisters and these friends who are 
interested in this topic and are willing to put this time into it. We ask your blessing over the weeks to come, that we will have clarity, that we will come away from these weeks together with a full understanding of what you have intended and how we are to go about our own lives with regard to this topic, how we are to aid others who struggle and struggle in whatever ways on this topic going forward. Help us this week as we ponder these matters about you and the absolute necessity that is you for all things. Grant us safety, we ask you. Help us to represent you well in the spheres to which you've assigned us. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.